The Rami Zaid Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Rami Zaid Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. My guest today is Andy Myers, Chief Executive Officer of Shangri-La Construction based in Los Angeles, California. During this interview, Andy will be a little vulgar and inappropriate. He'll be hilarious and sarcastic, but most of all, he'll continue to provide energetic and positive motivation for you listeners to apply to your work life and family life. From his UCLA football days to two years in the NFL with the Buffalo Bills, then residential real estate in Beverly Hills, then onto the entertainment industry, and now leading a commercial construction company in Los Angeles, Andy's life has been inspirational to say the least. Listen for words like gratitude, generosity, loyalty, and love, and you'll understand what Andy Myers is all about. This was a very special conversation for me, and I know you listeners will enjoy it too. That said, Here's my conversation with Andy Myers. This episode is brought to you by Cleanse on the Go. As potential sponsors approached me to advertise on my podcast this past year, I made a conscious decision to only bring on sponsors I absolutely believe in. And Cleanse on the Go is just that. A cleanse for me had nothing to do with weight loss, although it does that as well if that's what you're looking for, but more of a mental reset. I love the two-day cleanse option they have, but you have the choice of either a one, two, or three-day option to cater to your needs and wants. The beauty of Cleanse on the Go is its mobility. As most of my loyal listeners know, I absolutely promote a healthy eating and exercise lifestyle. But I'm a single dad, two kids, working 24-7, so to say I'm a bit busy is a ludicrous understatement. Cleanse on the Go is super easy to use. They're just small packets you mix with water. These small packets can fit easily into purses or pockets and are great for travelers, busy lifestyles, or embarrassingly lazy lifestyles, if that is you. As a listener to the Rami Zaid Show, you can get 17% off your order if you go to their website. It's simply cleanseonthego.com, one word. Pick the cleanse you want, and under discount code, just type in my first name, Rami, R-O-M-Y, and you'll receive 17% off. Do it, you'll love it. Now let's get back to the Rami Zaid Show. Andy Myers, welcome to the Rami Zaid Show. Thank you, Rami. Good to be here, buddy. You've had a fascinating life, beginning with your football career at UCLA, then playing two years with the Buffalo Bills, then high-end residential real estate in Beverly Hills then on to the entertainment industry, and for over a decade now, a CEO of the very successful commercial construction company, Shangri-La Construction. But before we get into that, let me just set a very entertaining tone for the listeners on some words and phrases given to me by your friends and family about Andy Myers to characterize your extremely contagious personality. Talkative, borderline, and in parentheses, or beyond borderline, inappropriate, <laughs> oversharing, Hilarious, lots of drama, loves new cars, wicked smart. He is very, very strongly opinionated. Loves a Jack Daniels and Diet Coke, generous to a fault, loyalty to the core, and fierce love for his people. I mean, if that doesn't set the tone for his show, I don't know what does. Do you think uh, we missed anything there? I think they're all full of shit. I don't know. And no, no problem swearing on the podcast. By the way, not an issue. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I just, no, I love it. This might be instant seventeen. You never know. <laughs> Each and every show I do, Andy, I ask executives like yourself how they start their day. The listeners actually, and a lot of the feedback I get, a lot of people are interested how people like yourself start their day. If there's a routine, if there's not. So, with that said, would love to hear how you normally start your day. I'm pretty much a creature of habit. I'm fairly robotic. I normally wake up really early, somewhere between 4 and 4.30 in the morning. And I start my day, minus, of course, the normal human stuff. You know, <laughs> I start my day really focusing on gratitude. And I typically, every morning, I will journal about things that I am grateful for, you know, 
whether it's, you know, and it, it changes. There's some things that are very consistent. Like I'm grateful for my health and the health of my family and friends because without health, we have nothing. But, you know, I really focus on all the fantastic things that life has brought me and realizing sometimes, you, you know, we're all human. So you don't, you don't necessarily wake up in the best of moods sometimes. But by the time you're done thinking about all the positive things that you have in your life and all the positive things that you want to do, it really sets the tone. Then I kind of, then I go into reading and, you know, some affirmations. And if I have enough time, I read books kind of on how to improve myself. And, and then I go to the gym and I go to the office. So going back to the gratitude journal, I think that's awesome. Is that something that you've done for years and years? Is it something you've recently learned? Or I guess, when did this start and why did it start? Really interesting, actually. For years, I had noticed that when I say something, it happens, both positive and negative. Hmm. And it seems like I would, if I said something negative, it would happen more rapidly in my life than perhaps the positive. And so I have a CEO coach. His name is Guillermo Heisaud. I met him through a company called Vistage, which is a, a mm -hmm. network of CEOs, and I enjoy it. I'm a member still. And I said, you know, you might find this to be crazy, but every time I say something, it seems to happen. And I realize the more emotional I am about something, the more power I have behind my words. And that's just been my own personal observation for years and years and years and has been consistent in my life. And so I really want to focus. I, I went through a very difficult time three, four years ago. I bought out a partner who was like a brother to me. And we had a very harsh, I'll call it divorce. And it was probably nearly as meaningful as a divorce. And luckily, I don't know. You know, currently, I don't think I'm getting a divorce. She hasn't told me that yet. But aside from having to split up your children, working with the same person for 20 years and being mentored by that person, and then, you know, basically being stuck with, and that person's name is Steve Bing, you know, God rest his soul. He committed suicide on June 22nd of last year. Um, and fortunately for me, as a little sidebar, we were friends prior to his passing again. And in this very dark time that was that was three years ago, you know, I was faced with a lot of decisions that I had to make, maybe even four years ago at this point. And I decided to push on and I decided that quitting was not an option. And I also decided that everything that had happened, I had been thinking about could possibly happen four years prior. Mm -hmm. And so Really, you know, I believe that your mind, that the power of your subconscious mind and the fact that we as human beings have so much energy that if you can control and quit focusing on things that you don't want or what you're afraid of, and you can focus on the things that you do want and then pursue them vigorously and have the faith that you can achieve them, your life gets better really very quickly. And that is my own personal experience. I, I mean, it was a fantastic change. And I'm not saying that I'm perfect. If, I think if you ask my wife, <laughs> you know, she may not say that I'm always the most grateful human being, but she has no idea how difficult it is to be married to her. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh. She's amazing. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of how it started. It started in, in trying to figure out why do I consistently have ups and downs? You run, 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 and you're having all the success. And all of a sudden, I'm taking five steps backwards, and I'm running, running, running. I'm taking five steps backwards. And now I look forward and really just focus on the visions and the task ahead, and I don't look back. And so on this gratitude journal, that was awesome, Andy. I would assume, is it every single day? You may be grateful for the same thing a few days in a row, or is it switched up based on the day, or is it just how you're feeling that morning? You know, there are certain things that I am pretty consistent with. For instance, I always, I said earlier, I'm grateful for my health and for the health of my family and friends. I'm a lover of people. And so I want to make sure that I'm grateful, not only for my health, but for the people who I care about, you know? And if you think about it, it's like, yeah, we can all walk around, not all of us. I mean, but those of us that can, we can walk, we can talk, we can pick things up. You can smell, you can see, you can taste. That's pretty amazing because there's a lot of people who can't. 
So how much better is your life already? So that's what I'm pretty consistent with. I'm also very consistent with having gratitude for all of the money that has been given to me in my life, that circulates in my life. I'm very consistent with that. And then sometimes I shift as I'm writing. There's no, I don't necessarily write down 10 things. Sometimes there'd be 13 things. Sometimes it's on two pages, sometimes on four pages. It really is is where my mind is. And sometimes I'm just feeling much more grateful. And then sometimes it's really a hard task to figure out what to be grateful for. But you know that there are things. It just takes a minute to quiet your mind and then think about it. It's like, I'm pretty grateful that we live in California because the weather is so good. Yeah. The topography is so beautiful. You know, sometimes you're grateful that it's a new day and with every new day starts a new beginning. And because yesterday didn't quite go the way you thought it was going to go. Always grateful for kids and stuff like that. But sometimes I'll switch and go into affirmations as well about the Mm. things that I want to become. And so I'll write those down and I'll review them. And at the very end, I always like to say thank you at least three times. I write them and then I read them back to myself aloud. So people might think I'm a little crazy and schizophrenic, but it works for me. And I don't know anybody who does it that it doesn't work for. I love that. You know, something else you mentioned was possibly going over a book in the morning. Are there any recent books, Andy, that you've been reading, whether it is CEO or personal or whatever that is, or any that stick out? Yeah, I love this author, Rhonda Byrne, because it was very simple. And she wrote the book, The Power Magic, the books, Power, Magic, and Secret. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily read those every day, but that was really a catalyst because the things that she was saying in there resonated with me because... I'm a pretty introspective human being, and I've always tried to hold myself accountable for the things that I do, because without being accountable, then you don't really ever improve. So if it's always somebody else's fault and you're always the victim, then you ultimately really don't have very many lessons to learn because you were perfect, right? Right. It's the smaller things, and I think that I wasn't as grateful as I am today. And I wasn't aware of the power that we all possess inside and the energy that we all possess. And those were three books that uh, was a catalyst. But the one that I think I enjoy the most was Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Mm -hmm. And I've read that book. I'm not a very good reader. I need to go to the Derek, you know, Zoolander Kids, their school for kids who can't read good. (laughs) It takes me very long. It takes me a long time to uh, sometimes grasp the concepts that I'm reading because my mind wanders, you know, as I'm reading, I'm like, I'm reading, I can, I'm definitely literate. I can read, but I'm not necessarily, I'd rather someone sit there and tell it to me versus me reading. Yeah. I'm an audible guy. I, I can't sit there and read either. I have to listen to them or it won't soak in. But I'll tell you what I do. I've read some of these books five, six, seven, maybe even 10 times and certain pieces of them countless times. And they've made me a better leader. They've made me a better father. I think they've made me a better husband. Because honestly, we all put so much effort into our businesses and making money. Oftentimes, we neglect our kids and our spouses. And I am at the top of the list of that, to be quite honest. I mean, I, one of the affirmations I always say, I want to be a great husband. I want to be a great father. I, and I say I'm always three times. But what it's done is it's also made me realize as a father, reading these books, you figure out that human beings are best when they're doing something they really enjoy. So I've quit projecting my own philosophy of what success means onto my kids. Meaning I don't drill into them for your university. You got to go to Harvard. You got to go to Stanford. You got to go to UCLA or some, you know, preconceived notion. I want them to be happy. And I want them to know that I love them simply because they exist because they're my child but that I expect from them whatever they're capable of doing. And so if somebody wants to be an esthetician, then go be an esthetician. You don't have to go to Stanford for that. You know, if somebody wants to be, you know, like my one of my daughters wants to sing and dance. I say that because my youngest daughter currently wants to be an esthetician. She's 10. My 14 year old would love to be, I think on Broadway and she's beautiful and she's a great singer and she's pursuing that. And I need to be fully supportive. And then, you know, my son is my clone. So he'll, he wants to do exactly what, what I do. But nonetheless, you know, you got to let give these kids freedom. And I think that's the same thing I've learned in business. You got to create a, an environment where the path is clear, the accountability is clear, but you got to give the people around you the freedom to be their best and to, to help improve your business. 
That's great. So I want to take from your middle son exactly what you do. And that's a good segue because I want to start with high school football for you, Andy. (laughs) You were an offensive lineman your entire career. And today you stand about 6'6". And I think I've heard you say to others, an extremely sexy 300 pounds or so. But at Fontana High School in Southern California, I heard that that was the first time you actually stepped on the football field. And coach, given your size, said, go to the O-line. And your comment back was, who's that? <laughs> Which is hilarious. But tell me a little bit about Fontana High and then you, you stepping on the football field. Yeah, I mean, Fontana was, is a really interesting place, a very blue-collar, working-class city. And from the, the 70s through the 80s into the early 90s, which is when I graduated in 1993, it was a lot, uh, just imagine a, a football town in Texas, all la Friday Night Lights. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got 10,000 people. It's a steel town. It was Fontana had had Kaiser Steel, which is given way to California Steel, which Kaiser is in Kaiser Permanente, Kaiser Healthcare. It was the largest steel mill west of the Mississippi. I think the town had 42, 45,000 people in it. Probably 30,000 of those people worked in the steel mill. And that high school was a wonderful place. And it was really built by that steel mill. So you had a big stadium. You had a high school that had a a men's gym, a woman's gym, a men's pool, a a woman's pool, a radio station, an auditorium that held thousands of people, you know. Incredible. Just things that, you know, metal shop, agriculture, they had a farm, (laughs) agriculture, you know, I took my driver's ed there. Anything you could possibly imagine, the school had it. And a lot has changed over the years. And that school was really, the principal was just a wonderful woman named Kay Rager who passed away. And my high school football coach is a guy named Dick Bruick. And so I walked on to the football field because my, my parents were worried I was getting fat. So <laughs> so you could do something. I, I guess playing Atari 5600 or whatever the shit it was in Nintendo yeah. was, was not their idea of physical activity. Although my thumbs were extremely strong from pushing the buttons. There you go. So I, I went out and I, I started to play football and I really didn't know what I was doing. And Fontana is a three-year school. I actually had played the year before for La Mirada High School. So I was going to a particular school and then, but I didn't really play, just to be very clear. Um, so I moved out to Fontana and it was really the first time that I had really played football. And they put me on the sophomore team and they put me at tackle. And basically, it took about a week of being yelled at because I was big. And ironically, I was actually faster than people thought. And Mm. so what they really did was teach me, they got the best out of me. It may not have been the kindest, most gentlest way to get the best out of somebody and certainly probably would have landed people in jail or fired today. But I, (laughs) I appreciate every single bit of it. So I started right away my first game there, played very well. And then the big honor when the team go the varsity team goes to playoffs was to be moved up to varsity, which mm. I was moved up to varsity along with like maybe three or four other players and then started my next two years on varsity. And at the time, Fontana had a number of offensive linemen, two that went to USC, they're a little bit older than me, and one that went to University of Arizona, Clay Hadabaugh, Robert Loya, and Paul Stamer. And then I was the fourth that went two years after them to UCLA. I heard an amazing stat that out of high school, you were offered over a hundred full ride collegiate football scholarships, which is amazing. But I think that you first committed to USC and would love for you to tell the listeners about that story. Cause you are captain UCLA all day. And <laughs> I mean, you're a Bruin through and through, I know that, um, but would love to hear that story from USC to UCLA. Yeah, super, super interesting. When I was getting recruited, it was a very interesting time in college football. Tom Osborne was the head coach of Nebraska. Uh, Lou Holtz was the head coach at Notre Dame. Don James was the head coach at University of Washington. The Miami debacle had just occurred. Coach Donahue, Terry Donahue, who I love, was the head coach at UCLA. And Dick Tomey was the head coach of University of Arizona. And you have to take yourself back to that era of football. The SEC was not good. 
and it was pretty mm-hmm. much dominated by the Pac-10 and the Big Ten, right? It was the the same people who dominate the Big Ten now it was Michigan, Penn State, Ohio State, and back when I was playing, it was USC and UCLA and Washington dominating the Pac-10. And then, of course, you had Miami, and I mean, all the other schools were good, but it just wasn't like it is today where it's so grossly different from conference to conference. Mm-hmm. And so, ironically, every one of those coaches, except for Coach Donahue, oh, and Larry Smith was the coach at USC, and all of those coaches were either, they were all saying they weren't going to retire, and you, you could argue they retired on their own, or were there potentially recruiting violations? Who knows? It was before everybody was looking up everyone's skirt for every single thing. So who <laughs> knows what the reason was? They were yeah. just tired of coaching because of the pain in the ass. But basically, I ended up saying, okay, I can't go to Notre Dame. I'm not going to go to Nebraska. Plus, I flew over South Bend, Indiana. It looked like Fontana with snow, and I hate the cold. So I was like, <laughs> Fontana with snow. That's great. In a big school with touchdown Jesus. But it's yeah. much really not the most attractive place in the world. And Fontana is probably way more attractive now. So to all of you live in Fontana, it's nicer than South Bend. <laughs> but – I decided to go with USC. I, I grew up in Southern California. Half my family are Bru- Bruins. Half the family are Trojans. Seemed like most of the men were Trojans. And, you know, USC was playing Fresno State in the Freedom Bowl. And I was there and I was watching the game and I had my USC shirt on. And two of my buddies that played at Fontana were already offensive linemen at USC. And they ended up losing to Fresno State, which was one of the darkest periods in Trojan football history. And they immediately fired Larry Smith. But what they had was an amazing offensive line coach named Bob Palsik. And that was the main reason that I went to USC. Uh, he and I had a personal connection. A few weeks go by, and I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to stay at USC. John Robinson's hired. He came out to my house. There was some kind of BS that he had committed a recruiting violation, but it was not anything bad. It was something stupid. Like he had either called me or came to my house before he passed the NC2A test. There was, there was no nefarious activity. It was just, you know, John Robinson being an older guy coming back from the NFL. And he was just, he was just trying to get on, do his job. It was really dumb, but my mom and my dad were like, you know, I, I don't know if we should just we maybe this shouldn't work because we don't want, you know, there was people claiming that I might have to sit out. People were going to challenge, you know, for a year. And I just ended up getting a phone call from Bob Powell. like, Hey, I'm at UCLA. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll switch. Cause that was my second choice anyway. So I switched to UCLA. It was that easy. It was, it was that easy. It was that easy because it was before signing day. Oh, okay. Got and it. I switched my commitment and it was probably the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It was the best choice that I could have made. And it's like, you know, things always happen for a reason. And we went on to, I never lost to USC. And then we almost won a national championship, but my senior year probably should have won two of them in a row, actually my junior and senior year, but having the experience of playing with Terry Donahue and the UCLA community was just second to none, and all of the connections and all of the opportunity that I have been afforded in my life, a lot of that was generated from UCLA. And that's why I'm so grateful for for the program in general. Yeah, I was going to say back to your word of, of gratitude. I know that you continue to stay super involved with UCLA, and it's probably part of just your personality. You know, for lack of a better term, saying UCLA, you have helped me so much get to at least the starting block of where I am today that you just have this need to, to give back to the university. What I love most about UCLA, and I can tell you what I like the least. <laughs> right. Uh, I actually really love Chip Kelly. I think he's doing a great job. And I, I would, of course, I want them to win more than they're winning, but, and we were able to win. So I'm not, can't figure out why we currently can't, but I know why I know what Chip Kelly's doing. He's building the program the right way, taking his time. And I respect that mm-hmm. very hard to do, but what I love most about the university is they really are truly concerned and have been since I was there, early 90s, starting in 94 and graduating in 1998, about the entire person, the full person. They mm-hmm. are, my freshman year, UCLA was the first university. They converted an offensive line coach who I did love, and I have a great relationship today, 
but he always makes fun of me because I, I was going to USC and only came to UCLA because Bob Palisic came. But he, Coach Coach K, Ed Kazarian, had such an impact on so many players. He retired as UCLA's offensive line coach and became the academic football coach. Hmm. He would show up at classes that started at 8 in the morning. He'd be there at 7.30 doing roll as you walked in. And believe me, if you did not show up to a class and he spot-checked everybody – the, the amount of torture that was going to come your way as far as additional physical activity, penalty runs, rolling three, 400 yards, like just on your side and just rolling in the wet grass Ugh. until someone vomits all over the place. <laughs> that's, that's what you got. And they were on top of you. He would even watch inside the classroom to make sure that you were participating, that you were sitting in the front three rows, that you, you made yourself known that you attended office hours and, between that and the student supportive services, that just, we're all kids. You know, you're, I was 17 when I got there. Sure. You're 18, 19 years old, and you're free from your parents. Even if you're, you grew up in Brentwood and you're, or Beverly Hills, and, you know, you said it's right between the two, you're still not at home. So right. you're being a grown up for the first time, and you're all boys, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> right. Well, I don't have to get into it, you know? Yeah. So, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, it's, it was really great to have a parental influence that was there. And I believe that a lot of that same thing exists today. And they really are concerned with making sure that people, student athletes, get the full value. And I think looking at the demographics and listening to all of the stuff that we listen to on a daily basis in the news about you know, systemic racism and inequality. And you just realize that UCLA has done a very good job for a very long time about trying to give equal opportunity to a lot of people. And if you can have the opportunity to go to UCLA, I can assure you that you will get as much out of it as you put into it. That's great, Andy. I think that, you know, it's obviously a very special place. And and I think, again, kudos to you for staying involved to a great university like that. I, I did want to throw out what is probably my favorite statistic of yours in your college football career. I, do you still have the personal foul record at UCLA? Well, I, I certainly <laughs> did then. I will tell you one thing that you learn playing for Dick Brooke in Fontana High School is how to be very aggressive. And yeah. so, most of what I did is, I think, currently illegal. I'm not 100% <laughs> sure because I can't figure out why people aren't doing certain things. Not confirm or deny if it's illegal. <laughs> well, I, I think, I mean, it actually could currently be truly illegal, not just on the football field, but actually could probably get you in trouble. But yeah, I love to set the tone in general in life. And you realize that if you, you know, football is a physical game, but it's also a mental game. And so- yeah. One would say, oh, you're dirty or you're a cheap shot. Or my online coach used to call me. There was an older guy. Now I'm an old guy, but there was a much older guy named Conrad Dobler. He said, you put him to shame sometimes, the things you'll do. And at the end of the day, it's what I did best. I was able to control the tempo of the game from an offensive lineman's perspective by making sure that the defense was really paying less attention to who may have the ball and more attention to what I may be doing for fear that I might injure them or something like that, which, you know, that happened on occasion, but you know, it works both ways. Right. <laughs> but it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And I definitely, yeah, they, they changed the rule at one point where if you get, I think it was two personal fouls in a game or a third that you were out for, I don't even know the rule, but I was always, creeping on the the thing. So if I get a, a personal foul too soon, the coach is like, oh man. <laughs> oh, I love <laughs> this it. Gonna get thrown out. <laughs> you better be careful. So <laughs> I was pretty tough with my own teammates too. You fumble the ball, I throw you out of the game. Yeah. Just the way it goes. I love, you know, the guys I played with and we had a really close team and people just expected that behavior. I just, that's what, who I am. I still do the same thing. Yeah. Just, <laughs> it's just, now it's business. Yeah. It's business. <laughs> Exactly. So from there, it was a few years with the Bills, I know. And I wanted to, right after the Bills, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong, you had a very short stint into residential real estate. And I know it wasn't a big part of your career, but I bring it up because a fun fact is your first client was Farrah Fawcett. 
And I just think that obviously being a celebrity is very cool, but just in that role of doing residential real estate in that area, a woman like Farrah Fawcett, who I heard is a fantastic person. And I know your third daughter's name is Farrah, so it's probably no accident, but just wanted to get a little bit of the flavor of that time in your life when you were doing residential real estate in that area. I always was drawn to real estate and development and being UCLA being nestled really nicely between Westwood, Bel Air, Brentwood, and Beverly Hills. It lends itself to being really attracted to to that because, you know, most of the people back then, I mean, you got to go back to the early 90s, the wealth, it was all real estate development. And I, I mean, still to this day, I would say that some of the richest people, I would say, I know that many of the richest people are in the real estate business to be outdone now by high tech and, you know, some of those businesses, but because it can happen overnight, whereas in our business, you know, you have to sort of titrate up a bit. You have to accumulate assets and do what you do best, which is keep on grinding through. But Farrah, I met Farrah Fawcett at UCLA. You meet a lot of stars at UCLA. And I was introduced to her by my former business partner, Steve, who was very, very close to her. And Farah had just had some really bad things happen and I, to herself personally, and I won't get into that, but she was very scared. She was a very sweet, kind human being. So she lived next door to Wilt Chamberlain up off of Mulholland initially. And me and some of my buddies would go up there because she was really scared. She was scared <laughs> for her own safety because of things that had happened to her. And so, you know, it was great. We'd go up to Farrah's house and we played ping pong and she'd be surrounded by big, giant, oafy 21-year-olds. And we all thought it was awesome because it was Farrah Fawcett and she was so sweet. And we, she'd make grilled cheese and we'd eat grilled cheeses, you know, have a few beers and play ping pong. And, you know, and if she was nervous. And then as I moved on to my, with UCLA career and was always home in between, you know, camps and stuff with, you know, in Buffalo... I started, I took my real estate exam and she just wanted to move. She wanted to move away from the hills because she was unsafe. I said, Farrah, why don't we move you to a high rise on Wilshire, which is known as the Wilshire building. And that's exactly what we did. And it was the greatest thing for her because she could be safe and she had security and the elevator opened right up in her unit. And I continued to be friends with her. She did a, a low budget movie for the time Shangri-La Entertainment called Night at the Golden Eagle. I was actually in it because the security, the extra for the prison guard didn't show up and the uniform was so big, but then I looked like 10 pounds of shit in a five pound sack because I was a little too big for the uniform. (laughs) That was a little bit of And and I actually got into the movies because no one could deal with Farah. She was always late. So I'm like, well, I'll pick her ass up. So I cruise by the Wilshire building. Farah, let's go. And she's like... Okay, they used to call me Big Baby. They said I looked like a giant infant with my <laughs> face. It's like, okay, Big Baby, I'm coming. I'm like, no, let's go. Move your ass, Farrah. We got to go. Yeah, I'm getting yelled at over here. You're never So, you know, that, that was my entree into the movie business was driving Farrah Fawcett tonight at the Golden Eagle. Oh, I love that. It's another good segue, Andy. So Shangri-La Entertainment, and we've talked about Steve Bing, and we'll, we'll get into him in a second. But how did Shangri-La Entertainment find you or or vice versa coming out of residential real estate? Well, I actually met Steve Bing when I was a junior. And my roommate and one of my good friends is Cade McNown, the quarterback from UCLA. And he met a guy who was a quarterback at UCLA called David Norrie. And David Norrie's an announcer. And Norrie's a great guy. And Norrie introduced him to Steve. Steve and James Kahn and a whole bunch of people would come to the games and stand on the sidelines and and watch. And Steve was quite a donor to UCLA, in particular to the healthcare side of things. And we just ultimately became friends while I was playing. And so he's the one that introduced me to Farah. And then I consulted two people. My, the reason I had a very non-illustrious NFL career was really my quad tendon. My right quad tendon would kind of tear at the drop of a hat. I had three quad tendon surgeries. I didn't miss any games because of it. But my life was relatively miserable because of it due to all of yeah. the shoot it up, drain it, shoot it up, drain it, shoot it up, drain it. And then yeah. you know, I was like, that's basically why I quit. So I'm like, this is an awful way to go. And I yeah. know that the recovery for a ruptured quad tendon takes forever. And so mine was torn. So they kept doing it. And then ultimately uh, it ruptured after on its own anyway, after oh. I was playing. But 
which now it's fine. But Farah, me driving Farah was because Steve wanted to start a movie company. And he and I were were driving out. He wanted to buy a plane. We were driving out to see Malcolm Forbes' 727 that was parked in an airfield in San Bernardino, California. And we had, he loved to screen movies. And we had just screened a movie called Lost Horizon. And Lost Horizon was about a basically, to make a long story short, a group of people traveling in a plane, crashing into the Himalayas, and then kind of on a death march to try to save their lives, trying to come out of this snowy, you know, abyss, basically. And they come through this ravine, and lo and behold, there's this utopian valley called Shangri-La. And he wanted to create basically a Shangri-La utopia for Final Cut directors and for the talent where they would he would give them far more flexibility than the studio system would give them. And so they could do passion projects with him. He could work with the directors he wanted to work with, which he did. And so as I was driving fair, it started out really, really small. And so I started out actually doing both the real estate side of things and then handling the accounting. And then I became, it got bigger and I had to stop the residential real estate. And I started doing, I became what needed to become the CFO, which I was probably not qualified to do, but we were successful. I, I led a, we did a movie in Hawaii and it needed to get a tax credit to be financed. And so the mm-hmm. lawyers kind of failed at the task initially. And I picked it up. I was act, I believe it's called act 221, a high technology business tax credit. And we were able to get the entertainment business or filming a movie to qualify. And after that successful acquiring of the tax credits and then the subsequent selling of them to get the movie financed, I became the CFO. And then a few years later, again, Steve being an unorthodox individual, became the president of Shangri-La Entertainment and all things Shangri-La. And we went on to make some great movies. The biggest and most well-known is The Polar Express. Yep. Mm-hmm. And probably the most well-known concert film that we did was with the Rolling Stones called Shine a Light. And that was in conjunction with President Clinton's birthday. And it was a fundraiser for the Clinton Foundation, if my memory serves me correctly. And then there was a whole smattering of other movies, some mildly successful, some horribly unsuccessful, like Beowulf, <laughs> which I didn't want to do, by the way. I begged him not to do some of those. And, and it's really interesting because... He and I would get in lots of debates over movies we should do. And we passed on some pretty good household names. And we also passed on buying Marvel, which I didn't understand. I wanted to, I was dying to buy Marvel way back when. My life well, was- Marvel's like, barely successful now. That would have been bad. Yeah, by the way, <laughs> oh my God. I honestly can't remember, but I believe the price was either $5 million or $15 million. And Oh, way, my God. Either way, when you're sitting on- a billion dollars. It seems like a pretty good investment. I'm like, you know, I had those underoos, dude. I know you didn't have the same life growing up, but like, <laughs> I used to walk around thinking I was the Hulk with those tiny little, you know, that's right. Tiny <laughs> so, so I'm like, everybody likes the Hulk. You know, what's wrong with you? <laughs> exactly. You know, no one watches, no one wants to watch a cartoon. I'm like, it's not a cartoon. It's real. You know, so it's real to me when I was five anyway. Uh, so Andy with Steve, you know, you mentioned earlier in the show, three, four years ago called a, a business divorce. But, you know, you spent almost 20 years with them. And obviously that his tragic death June of, of last year was awful. But going back to the word gratitude, when you look back to Steve and your business partnership, what are you grateful for? What did you learn from Steve that you can now take with you in life? Interesting that you asked that too. When I was going through, as I referenced earlier, that really dark time I read through a book and it said, you know, in order to move forward, and if you have a conflict, rather than focusing on all the reasons to not like somebody or to blame somebody for something, why don't you let them know how grateful you are for them? So I wrote him a letter that caused me to basically cry while I was writing the letter because I was so upset by the whole goings on. And I thanked him for a whole host of things. I thanked him for the original, for for believing in me, for trusting me, for giving me the opportunity to have one of the more interesting lives of anybody that I'm surrounded by on a daily basis, for introducing me to people like President Clinton, teaching me how 
to be in the presence of perhaps uh, a movie star and, you know, somebody who's valet parking your car and treating them with equal respect and gratitude. There's certain rooms that you're in where you're not supposed to talk because you're not the center of attention. And basically teaching you socially and from a business way. I mean, the one thing that Steve had was just an amazing way with, I would say, people. People found him interesting for a whole host of reasons, but he was a very respectful human being until he wasn't with people, till till you did something that he didn't like or he viewed you as a thing. And then he became, as he said, the crazy white man syndrome. He would go, he would be a, a complete lunatic. But he taught me a lot of how to behave and what to do. And frankly, I thanked him for all the things that he showed me not to do, that he did. And mm-hmm. so I was able to get as much good from all of the best qualities of Steve as I was able to get from all of the things that ultimately rendered him not as successful as he should have been. Because by all accounts, he was a wonderful person who just struggled with a lot, a lot of personal demons. And, you know, people took advantage of him and I learned that from him and I thanked him for that too. And so the list goes on and on. If I would have known you asked that question, I probably read you the letter Then I probably would have started crying. But (laughs) but the letter letter was a lot better because it took me hours to do than what I just said, but I cannot extend any more gratitude to a human being than I can to him, except for perhaps parents, grandparents. I mean, he was on that level with me and he will always, he was in my wedding. My wife will always have a fondness for him. And I just choose to focus on the good. Most of everything you read about him is untrue. So Mm -hmm. people who are saying it, they don't actually know anyway, which is always so interesting to me going into the whole fake news thing. Most of it's fake because I know the truth and what they write about him is not true. Much of Thanks for sharing, Andy. I know that's, you know, it's it's emotional. I had the benefit of meeting Steve a handful of times and my interactions with him were nothing but positive and uh, sorry for the loss. I do want to somewhat segue that from Shangri-La Entertainment to now you being the CEO for over a decade to, of Shangri-La Construction. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about who Shangri-La Construction is? Shangri-La Construction, I started with Steve Bing. I bought him out four or five years ago, when initially we, Steve and I started the business together, we were supposed to be a developer builder. And he had a lot of financial problems, which didn't allow us to really deal with the developer part. And as time went on, we became a pretty prominent general contractor in Los Angeles. And we did a lot of third party. We continued to do a lot of third party general contracting work. And I formed a partnership with a great company from your neck of the woods called WebCore Builders. And we've gone on together to build the Ritz-Carlton and De- Ritz and Marriott in downtown LA. Shangri-La finished the Hotel Figueroa and the Freehand Hotel. And kind of the list goes on. We just finished a high-rise condo tower. You know, Webcore just finished a Four Seasons residence. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, pretty much primarily focused on hospitality and either for-rent apartments or for-sale condominiums. And I realized during all of the trials and tribulations of growing a construction business. And it's a very difficult, very difficult business. When I had had that split with with Steve, I had a couple of very difficult clients who didn't like to pay their bills at the end. And it really had a massive impact, not for the good on our reputation. I was battling multiple war. I was having a multiple front war, basically. And ultimately, I wore everybody out, which is as I said, I might have gotten a few 15-yard penalties thrown at me, but I kept thinking I was going to quit. And they weren't five-yard penalties. Those were 15s. I love 15-yard penalties. But through that process, I think people realized that maybe perhaps we were being painted with the wrong color brush. And we came out of all of those conflicts so much better off and even friends with some of the people we were in a conflict with. And... It was once I got rid of, you know, Steve and I parted, you know, company, I began to med- immediately pursue the developer angle. And without any partners, financial partners, we were able to, I've got the greatest team members of all time. I have a CFO who's never been a CFO before. I've got a COO who's never been a CEO before. 
I have a future president of my construction company. He's never been a president before. And the greatest thing, and it was with intention, the greatest thing I ever did was take people who are aligned on a values level and a vision level with the capacity to do a job that they've never done before and make them, give them the tools to perform and make them confident in their ability to perform. And that's exactly what they're doing. And so we've taken our, our little construction business and made it into a pretty, we're a very prominent affordable housing developer. We we're bringing innovation. We bring our own equity to the table. We were recently awarded public-private partnership of the year in Monterey County for a project we're doing with Salinas that was focused on immediately creating permanent supportive housing for the most at-risk homeless population. And we did it without tax credits and bonds, which is a big deal. We're we're midway through the renovation. The building is halfway occupied, which it's an in-place. If there's people living there where we're converting it from a motel to one bedroom and studio apartments. And we did the same thing in San Bernardino, the city of San Bernardino, which is in the Inland Empire, which is the neighboring city to Fontana, which was I was very excited about to go back to Fontana and San Bernardino in the Inland Empire to really help. Because I see that, you know, those are the people that need our help. The philosophy I have is if we can do things, if we can build high quality structures more quickly and less expensively, then we can make a dollar go further. We can charge less. And we can take the place of what has typically been a completely government financed business. Yes, these people cannot afford to pay rent. So somebody has to pay the rent. But the units that we're producing are less than $200,000 a key versus what's typically happening for the same thing, six hundred dollars to 700000 a key going through the process. And so we continue to drive innovation in that direction. And we're going to continue to do that here. I mean, Governor Newsom has actually been very progressive on this issue starting last year. And and it was actually some policies, the, the, the stimulus package that President Trump put out. The current administration is kind of great. You can do away with the stuff you don't like, but the stuff that's good, there's no pride of authorship. They'll just try to make it better. And this is one of those programs that I think President Biden has enhanced, as is, is you'll see coming out, which is exactly what needs to happen for not only the city of Los Angeles, but our state and our horrible, horrible homeless crisis. So we do that. And then, of course, we build market rate apartments as well. And we're starting to, we're in the market to buy hotels as well. It's a great time to buy a hotel. So something you've said in the past, and you mentioned earlier on your business being highly competitive, and I think you're putting that lightly, Andy. I mean, the construction business is uber competitive. But something I've heard you say in the past was obviously respect for the competitors, but your biggest competition is yourself and would love for you to tell the listeners really what you mean by that. In my process of evolving kind of the way I think, the word competition to me stirs up all kinds of different emotions. And I operate off of a general philosophy that I want for myself in the same way that, that I want for others. So I want other people to achieve their goals and dreams just as much as I want to achieve my own. And so I have found that if I can kind of refocus and reframe this idea that I have to beat you, I have to get this at somebody else's expense. What I focus on is I believe that there's, we, we live in a pretty abundant world. And so I focus on rather, I don't, I don't pay any attention whatsoever to any other construction or development company. I don't really pay much attention to anything else in general. I don't watch the news because it just bums me out. I don't really, and I don't believe half the stuff they say anyway, because just because my own personal experience, I'm like, well, that's not what happened. I was there. I don't particularly think it's fruitful to spend my time watching CNBC or anything else because, you know, what difference does it make? I build buildings. Yeah, the rates go up, the rates go down. Everything adjusts. Commodity prices go up, commodity prices go down. I focus all of my attention on my vision and I focus all of my attention and the attention of the executives in my company on preparing ourselves to receive the opportunities that are coming our way. I focus on how can we be the very best that we can possibly be as a general contractor, as a developer. And when opportunities come our way, how can we execute on those those opportunities as efficiently within as possible within 
our core values within our core focus. And I always use the analogy at some point now, I always used to use the Patriots because I love Tom Brady, but you're fortunate enough to get drafted as a wide receiver now for Tampa Bay and Tom Brady in the, towards the end of his career is the quarterback and it's third and 11 and you're in and he throws you the ball and you do this ridiculous circus catch because he's throwing it off his back foot or something that he doesn't usually do and you catch it. Wow, that was pretty good. You throw it to you again, you catch it again. The next thing you know, you're becoming, you know, the next, you know, Gronkowski or whatever receiver right. organization and you're the go-to guy, right? Conversely, an opportunity comes your way and you miss it. You kind of don't see the field again, right? Yeah. We all make mistakes. We all kind of miss something. But in my my opinion and the way we operate our business and I think the way that our executive team leads and we're practicing, we're, we're doing a lot more with intention, with, with focus, creating plans with, with very, very, we don't just set a goal. We now set a plan on how we are going to achieve the goal and we review the plan. And it's my job to put it at this level, your job to put, to put a lot more detail to it, but we all agree on what we're pursuing. And the reason why we are doing it is because it makes us more able to do the work that will and does always come our way. So we don't really compete very often. Our clients wanna work with us for a whole host of different reasons. And certainly I'm not gonna hire somebody else to build a building that I own. Right. We are driven by our own personal portfolio. So we understand the dynamics, the general contract, we understand the dynamics that developers are going through. We, we don't back into a performa. We create a real performa. Then we say, okay, that we're, our construction costs are too high. We focus on the design. So we have design and engineering, everything. We are vertically integrated. We own subcontractors, and we can bring that to bear for certain clients, and certain clients take us up on it, and others do not. But over time with, with folks, you end up building trust, and it's sort of like they throw you the ball, they give you an initial job, it wasn't quite as good. Let's debrief on why the job wasn't as good as we'd have both liked it. Okay, well, let's change this. You change these things. We're not willing to do all of it, but we're going to do these three things. The job was 30% better than the last one. And so, well, you know, it can make it better if we go and do this too, right? And you do that, it makes it better. And the next thing you know, you, the client's using you as, the, as if you're their own general contractor and you've built trust right. and you've built a rapport because it's a lot. I mean, it's a lot for people to hand over a lot of the reins to a general contractor, but that is what's increasingly happening with us. And it's really driven because I got to tell you, it's one thing to go tell a client they're over budget. It's another thing you have to come to my office and tell me that we're over budget. Right. It doesn't go all so well or that we're late. <laughs> right. I, I dig into it differently. Yeah. Right. I'm not trying to shove the responsibility off on somebody else. The responsibility is all ours, and I want to know where the breakdown was right. because this is unacceptable. And so we take that same approach. And it is we are the only people that – if I said there's a competitor, there is really no competition. The only impediment to achieving our goals and dreams and our, our vision is ourselves because the vision is very, very clear. Yeah, And how we're going to get there is clear. But I think we're starting to try to control the journey less – because the journey is what the journey is. You never know. We had a massive win this year. We, we were negotiating with a client. We'd been, we've spent two years on this thing. And people were getting, as I call it, the speed wobbles. <laughs> Contract negotiation is like, this is really starting to be the shits. Yeah. You know, like I, don't, I don't really feel this partnership, as we like to call it. This is becoming going to be really exciting to sign the contract. And then every single day thereafter, I'm going to wish I didn't. Right. So we actually fired the client and they're like, how can you, you can't do that. I'm like, well, actually I can. And I just did like, I'm done with you. You're like, yeah, I, I'm not going to take your guys. Like, well, you guys are going to make any money then. I said, no, no, you don't understand. I'm going to make a lot more money by not taking your job. Right. And it was the right decision. And it's something I learned by taking those jobs in the past because I'm like, I got to do this work. He's like, no, no, you pass on that. The next thing you know, you pass on something that's $40 million, you get something that's 130. Sure. And you have a way better staff to do it. You're not running around. And that's exactly what happened. And I think 
as we've gone into it, that's, that's my, we are our own, either our best friend or our worst enemy. And it's like, let's just stay disciplined and let's take the best idea wins. And I'm the one that they usually have to talk down. I'm like Jojo, the circus boy. I'm ready to like, it's like my little pet. I'm so excited about it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. They're like, all right, ease up. Ease it up. It's <laughs> uh, well said, Andy. I mean, I, I know your track record alone, Shangri-La Construction is going to be nothing but successful. I wish you all the best. And I like to wrap up my shows with some rapid fire kind of fun questions for the guests. So if you're game, I'm going to start letting them rip. You ready? Sure. Okay. First one is, this should be a fun one, given what your friends said at the beginning, those characteristics about you. But the first one is, what is one thing? You got to pick one. What is one thing you do not mind spending money on? Cars. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that was going to be the the answer. It's just, that's just something that drives you. No pun intended there. Next one. Do you have a favorite quote or quotes? I'm a quote geek. So I ask all my guests if they have a favorite quote or one that sticks with them right now. I have one. I always misquote it from John Wooden. If you think you don't have enough time to do it right the first time, how do you think you have enough time to do it twice? Uh, that's a good one. That's a good one. And he, he's Mr. UCLA too. Yeah. And I was like Mark Twain. I think it was Mark Twain said this. Quitting smoking was the easiest thing I've ever done. I've done it a thousand times. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, all right. Next one. If you could choose a completely different position, has nothing to f with football, no real estate, no entertainment, no construction, a completely different position, what would it be and why? I would probably be a plastic surgeon. Mm, interesting. Interesting. And the reason why is I initially went into UCLA as with the idea that I was going to become a doctor. And I love plastic surgery <laughs> for whatever reason. <laughs> I like good looking people. So, so I'm well, like, you're in I'm LA, man. I feel like I would be helping people feel better about themselves. Got it. I like it. Okay. Next one. If you were to be given a free 60 second advertisement during a Super Bowl game, what would you want to say? This is to the biggest audience on the planet. I would probably do a public service announcement actually surrounding the truths of affordable housing. Mm. And the importance of, of dealing with the issues surrounding homelessness. That's a great answer. Okay, last one. So your ultimate dinner, whatever is on the plate or plates in front of you and what is in the glass? Oh, that's so easy. <laughs> I've got a huge bone and ribeye. I'm probably sitting at Mastro's. Uh -huh. I have a tall Jack and Diet Coke and a pint-sized glass, not that skinny, wimpy glass because my hand's too big. I don't like it. <laughs> followed by the most scrumptious butter cake possible. And then, oh my gosh. Then I leave way, way fatter than I went in, feel guilty <laughs> about it for two seconds, and then wish I could eat like that every night. <laughs> I love it. You know, my last guest, Kevin Euclid, he's a former baseball player for the Red Sox. His meal was also at Ma Mastro's. He mentioned Mastro's. I mean, that place is awesome. Uh, it's so great. So great. A, a buddy of mine, Jeff, runs the one in Costa Mesa down here. And they, they do a fantastic job. I got some other, I got a lot. I like to eat. Just imagine that. <laughs> Andy, this has been a great hour. And I'll let the listeners know where to find you on LinkedIn and Shangri-La construction site. But is there anything that you would like to leave the listeners with, whether it's, you know, you, the company or something inspiring? But I just know this, this hour was very special for me. I don't know. I think that the thing that I try to impart to as many people as who listen to me is that I think we all have the ability to achieve whatever we want in life. And if you just focus on the things that you want rather than the things that you don't want or don't like, it just changes the perspective. And it really, it takes practice, but it becomes part of your life and you realize you become a much happier person and the happier you are, the better that you do, in my opinion. Great way to end it. Andy Myers, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Rami. Have a great one, buddy. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Andy Myers. You can find Andy and Shangri-La Construction on LinkedIn or at their website, shangri-laconstruction.com, all one word. And you can find me at my website, 
RamiZaid.com. That's R-O-M-Y-Z-E-I-D.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And I hope you all learned something interesting.